0: I've come to a point in my career where winning is the most important thing. Uh, Aside from all personal accolades, I think I've done a lot there, but winning is the most important thing. And being a New York Yankee and the history and and, and the present and the future, I think it provides you an opportunity when you drive to the ballpark every day that you actually have an opportunity to win and, and win big, hopefully in October.
1: So, James, do you remember where you were when the Alex Rodriguez trade to the Yankees happened?
2: Yeah, I was with you.
1: Uh, <laughs> we were. Did I tell yeah. you that
2: it happened? Is that how you found out? I remember watching ESPN with you in our basement of our childhood home, and a like you know like a, a sports center breaking news thing coming up, and I'm a this. Chiron da-na-na, da-na-na. <laughs> yeah, and a Chiron that had Alex Rodriguez's face at the top and Alfonso Soriano's face at the bottom, announcing the trade. And, uh, I remember being like a little bummed that I was like, do not need to give up Soriano? Like, who's this bum? I don't
1: remember that at all. Um, (laughs) but that's great. I think, uh, yeah, I don't have a strong, I, I I definitely sympathize or, or sort of remember that feeling that like being bummed that Soriano left because I liked Soriano a lot, but I don't remember the details. And I feel like it was, you know, there was so much discussion as we talked about in our last episode of Alex going to Boston. And then the Yankee trade just kind of happened out of nowhere. And it was almost just like this thing falling into your lap and you didn't even know uh, what to make of it. And yeah, like it was like, Oh man, I remember being super excited about it and being, you know, although I was a little bit bummed about Soriano, but it's like, you got to make that trade. Like he was so good, but it was, you know, it was crazy at the time.
2: Yeah. I, ha- I, and that spring I, Purchased uh, a lot of Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter tandem merch. Like oh, I had a pillow that had them both on it, as well as like a like a a plaque sort of picture frame situation that had like them in a mural. Um, and yeah, I remember being very excited about it.
1: Yeah, that stuff's probably worth a lot on eBay now if you still uh, if you still have it. Uh, not a lot of Jeter A-Rod tandem merch. <laughs> being, uh, being bought and sold these days. Um, so I think what we want to acknowledge here right in the beginning at, is that this is the part of our story where it gets personal for us since James and I are both Yankee fans. When Arod went from Texas to New York, we were no longer neutral observers of Alex Rodriguez. We were fans of his. And while, of course, we will vigorously maintain our objectivity from here on out, we do tend to take things a little personally and focus a little, mon- a little bit on the Yankee side of the equation. <laughs> The union of Alex Rodriguez and the Yankees seems kind of inevitable in retrospect. It was baseball's biggest star playing on baseball's biggest team in the biggest city in the country. But as we just said, it really kind of came out of nowhere because that Boston trade, which never actually happened, had dragged on for months. And then the Yankee trade happened seemingly in a moment of days. It was like a little bit unfair.
2: It's important to understand what the Yankees were like at the time. In retrospect, people tend to refer to the late 90s Yankees dynasty uh, and pinpoint the end of the dynasty around 2001 when they lost to the Diamondbacks in that seven game world series. Buster only wrote a book about that series called The Last Night of the Yankees Dynasty. But the ending points of eras are only obvious in retrospect. Olney's book only came out in 2004, and even then it was slightly controversial to suggest that the Yankees dynasty was over. After all, they won over 100 games in 2002 and 2003, they had just been back to the World Series in 2003, and if David Wells doesn't pull whatever weird lat muscle in the middle of the Game 5, maybe the Yankees uh, come a little closer then too.
1: I'll never forgive David Wells for that injury. I mean,
2: Jesus. It's like, you know, get on a stretching program. Yeah, really. Uh, Plus, you know, they they still had that magic about them. Aaron Boone still, you know, pulled out that dramatic walk-off against the Red Sox in the ALCS. They still had the magic of Boston's curse. And they still dominated the Red Sox and the rest of the American League. So adding A-Rod, the reigning MVP and the game's best player, just seemed like the rich getting richer.
1: And we don't use those words accidentally. Remember, Alex Rodriguez was the game's highest paid player, and the Yankees were the team with the game's highest payroll. For fans of other teams, or just fans of baseball generally, the potential dominance of the Yankees was inegalitarian. I think even Yankee fans can appreciate this. James and I certainly can. We relate to objections about the rich getting richer. Presenting the rich is good. But the other side who opposed this trade were other rich people, the other owners around the league who resented A-Rod's contract and resented the Yankees' willingness to spend money on free agents. It was owners like this who at first presented the idea that big contracts were going to undermine competitive balance in baseball when Alex first went to Texas, remember Chapter 2. Of course, that never came to fruition, but that didn't stop the league from imposing
2: a luxury tax in 2002. And remember, in 2004, we were just a couple years removed from the league threatening to contract teams, supposedly because of the inability of small market teams to keep up with the free-spending Yankees. That was the team the luxury tax was designed to suppress, and contracts like Alex's were what it was supposed to prevent. Teams were hoping to end the runaway salaries of the late 90s, and demonizing A-Rod's contract was a big part of that. For years, they had been insisting, You can't win with A-Rod. If A-Rod wants to win, he has to give money back. But then the Yankees came along and just said, no, we'll take him. We'll pay him. Put him on our tab. We'll build a super team. So the other owners had reasons to hope Rodriguez and the Yankees failed. But it wasn't out of some love for egalitarianism or competition. They were just watching their wallets. I'm John. I'm James.
1: We're the Lefty Specialists.
2: And this is the A-Rod Chronicles.
1: cursed. I am compelled to remind everyone that the Yankees dynasty of the 90s was not built on flashy free agent signings. We think of the Yankees as big free agent spenders from time immemorial. That's been their reputation since George Steinbrenner first bounded Leroy Jenkins style into the free agency era of the 1970s, signing Catfish Hunter and Reggie Jackson and Dave Winfield. But those days had cooled in the collusion era of the 1980s. And in 1990, Steinbrenner was suspended from baseball for paying $40,000 to a guy named Howard Spira, who said he could find dirt on his own player, D- Winfield. Steinbrenner was just trying to get out of paying $300,000 that he'd committed to Winfield's charity. That's how petty and
0: cheap the guy was. There are far-reaching decisions in LaFerre, George Steinbrenner. It is 1-0 Yankees. We're in the top of the fourth. I don't know how to exactly report this while doing a ball game, but I'm going to try. Dave LaPointe. Deals to Alan Trammell and is fouled away. Travis Fryman popped up the first pitch. Today, Baseball Commissioner Faye Vincent announced that Yankee owner George Steinbrand had agreed to resign on or before August 29th as managing general partner of the club for his dealings with gambler Howard Spira. A new managing general partner will be appointed on or before that date. Pitch is lined by Trammell down the right field line. One hop off the wall and it is touched by a fan, it will be a grounds rule double for Alan Trammell. George Steinbrenner will remain as a limited partner with the Yankees, but he will give up as the managing general partner, and that means that there will be someone new to run the Yankees. Wow! What grew out, you're hearing fans applaud the decision as they have heard it, I guess, on radios or maybe tiny TVs. Press conference is still going on. Cecil Fielder is the hitter, and the pitch is cut on
1: him. miss. While he was suspended in the early 90s, the Yankees built the foundations of their dynasty the old-fashioned way. Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Bernie Williams, Jorge Posada, Andy Pettit, all these guys were drafted and developed by the organization. Paul O'Neill, Tino Martinez, and David Cohn were acquired by trade. It's true that they had been able to keep this core together by giving some guys big contracts, most notably Bernie Williams, and they did have a high payroll. But in the 1990s, the Yankees were not real big players in the free agent market. They just paid their own guys a lot. The really big free agent signings of the 90s had nothing to do with the Yankees. Greg Maddox to the Braves, Barry Bonds to the Giants, Roger Clemens to the Blue Jays, Mo Vaughn to the Angels, Kevin Brown to the Dodgers. It was all the other teams that were making big splashes. It was only after the 2000 season, when the free agent wave of the 90s had started to recede, that the Yankees started to go after big-name guys on the open market. They added guys like Mike Messina and Jason Giambi, and then went international, signing Hideki Matsui out of Japan and Jose Contreras out of Cuba. That last one was the one that led Red Sox team president Larry Lachino to christen them the evil empire.
2: So the, the thing I always think about with Jose Contreras is that, like, Allegedly, he had verbally committed to the Red Sox beforehand, and like when he did sign with the Yankees, there's that story of Theo Epstein like destroying his hotel room or whatever. I mean, I
1: forgot about that story. Yeah,
2: yeah, and it's like Jose Contreras was pretty. Disastrous. I mean, not uh, you know, he's one pitcher, and he was just like a little below average, but like he was pretty resoundingly bad for the Yankees, and like it's. I'm really, I'm
1: really surprised you didn't use your favorite adjective mid there. I feel like mid is the perfect description of Jose Contreras's time with the Yankees.
2: Yeah, and like it was weird how that seemed to be such a flashpoint um, for a guy who like eventually turned into like a a decent reliever or whatever
1: yeah he did not turn out to be the like cuban ace that i think people thought uh he was when he first affected but it was really the fact that the yankees were bucking the trend that they were going after free agents while other teams were turning away from free agency and spending less for example listeners might remember from chapter two kevin brown the pitcher who got baseball's first 100 million dollar deal from the dodgers back in 1999 Well, by 2004, L.A. was looking to dump the last two years of that contract and shed the salary. Who did they find to take it? The New York Yankees. And that made them an outlier, which spawned resentment and a million comments about buying championships. But the Yankees hadn't won a championship in three years. None of their big free agent acquisitions had a ring yet, which is why they felt the need to go out and add A-Rod
2: in the first place. And it wasn't just A-Rod. That offseason, the Yankees had gone on a spending spree. And by 2004, they had a huge contract at virtually every position, with apologies to second baseman McGill Cairo. The pitching rotation didn't just have a $100 million guy in Kevin Brown, but also an $88 million guy in Mike Messina. The bullpen had the highest paid closer in baseball in Mariano Rivera, who was making over $10 million that year. In the outfield, they had Hideki Matsui in left, who had the largest contract ever for a Japanese player at $7 million per season. In center, they had Bernie Williams, still on the massive $87.5 million extension he'd signed before 1999. In right field, the Yankees went out and signed Gary Sheffield to a three year $39 million deal. In the infield, they had Jason Giambi and his $120 million contract at first, Uh, Derek Jeter and his $189 million contract at short, and now, of course, Alex Rodriguez and his $252 million contract at third. Third, the Yankees had added the best player in baseball and they weren't even playing him at his natural position. It was like buying a Picasso and then hanging it in your closet. Which brings us to the whole Jeter-A-Rod thing. As you surely remember from our last episode, the two former friends had had a falling out after Alex said some insulting things about Derek during the press tour following his big Texas contract. So there was some concern about the two being paired up as teammates now. But Brian Cashman hoped to avert that by making clear from the beginning that there would be no shortstop controversy. He called Jeter before the trade was announced to make clear that they were getting Alex to play third. And both Rodriguez and Jeter were, at least allegedly, fine with it. Jeter told Cashman the addition was pretty cool. At the introductory press conference, which in the Captain documentary Jeter notes that they like made him fly up to New York for, uh, A-Rod called the situation a non-issue. Jeter told the press, the worst thing that could happen for the media, I think, is for me and Alex to get along. I think everyone wants us to disagree, to battle over who's doing this and who's doing that. But that's not the case. But to anyone outside the organization, it seems strange. A-Rod was clearly the better defensive shortstop. He'd won the gold glove the previous two seasons. Uh, and while it seems like maybe Arod would eventually uh, need to move positions, I mean, you know, we're not that removed from Cal Ripken kind of breaking the mold for what a shortstop could be. And if A-Rod was going to continue to put up uh, crazy power numbers and add weight into his career, maybe he needed to play third or maybe needed to move positions But at the time, it seemed like maybe the only reason to move him to third was to protect Jeter's ego.
1: Yeah, I think that it's definitely uh, possible that a would have had to move to third eventually at some point in his career. I mean, it's a little weird that Jeter finished his career as a shortstop. I mean, it's pretty rare for shortstops to play that position for two decades. But, you know, a was only 29 or 28 when he came to the Yankees. Like the idea that he was probably at least four or five years from having to move there For like his own reasons, Um, it seemed like doing it at that point seemed clear that was just about accommodating Jeter.
2: Yeah, but maybe a move like that to uh, preserve the locker room would be worth it if it prevented discord in the clubhouse, but that didn't really work out. All of these free agent acquisitions had led to a lot of turnover in the clubhouse, and many of them, like Kevin Brown and Gary Sheffield, were known to be difficult to get along with. Alex, though, would become the most prominent of these new faces, these highly paid, big-name free agents who hadn't actually won anything in New York yet, who were not true Yankees.
1: Yankees actually opened the 2004 season in Japan. So A-Rod's first hit as a Yankee came in the Tokyo Dome in a game against Tampa Bay. They were still the Devil Rays back then. Just a piece of trivia in case anyone ever asks you. And the 2-1. Line drive down the right field
0: line. That's a base hit. A fair ball into the corner. Alex Rodriguez will out first. He'll go to second. Cruz digs the ball out, fires it in. And that's A-Rod's first base hit as a New York Yankee. A double lead off the sixth.
1: Um, both he and the team got off to slow starts uh, The Yankees and Red Sox played seven times in the first month of the season And Boston won six of those matchups In a four-game series in Fenway, A-Rod had only one hit And by the, at the end of April, Rodriguez was only hitting 253 with three home runs The Yankees were just a game over 500 and four games out of first place Early in May, they turned things around, though An eight-game winning streak pulled them, even with Boston And by June 1st, they were in first place in the American League East for good Alex also turned it around that month. He hit 333 with eight home runs, and he stole seven bases. But if everything looked hunky-dory, there were signs of trouble. For one, Jeter had started the season in one of the worst slumps of his career. For one stretch, he went 0 for 32, and as late as May 25th, his batting average was below 200. There was a Sports Illustrated headline around then that was just his face and the words, The Slump. Um, of course such things happen in baseball and Jeter ended up having a monster June he lifted his OPS by 170 points in one month but the media's reaction to Jeter's slump showed how right Jeter had been about their lusting for a feud between him and A-Rod Ian O'Connor who was a beat writer covering the team at the time and later wrote a biography of Jeter suggested that Derek was quote adversely affected by this tense and awkward pairing on the left side of the infield and that quote Arod's rods arrival was a contributing factor, if not an overriding factor in Derek's struggles at the plate. I think this is a little stupid.
2: <laughs> in the Captain documentary, like, to my surprise, uh, I found, like, Jeter does kind of intimate that, like, maybe it contributed a little, you know? And Yeah, I
1: was surprised did. by that, too, that Jeter even entertained it, but yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, th- so, like, there was just, like, th- I remember... This like turnaround being like all of these dramatic narratives being attached to it, both like in the moment and subsequently. Um, like the whole team was slumping early this season and then turned it around. Uh, like I remember there was a lot made of that Tokyo series to open the year. Like people were saying, like, that the, the Yankees and the, the like MLB teams should like never agree to play overseas like that. Yeah,
1: this whole, it was all because of jet lag that they were, yeah, they, it was <laughs> all because of jet
2: lag. <laughs> yeah um there uh, like joe tory in his book writes about like you know a, a frank conversation early in may with gary sheffield where like they have a heart to heart about like joe tory preferring vladimir guerrero over gary right, sheffield yeah. and then gary sheffield uh, saying that he felt slighted and unwanted by the yankees and then after that they they went on a tear and they got it together um, yeah, I
1: think like like slumps are just this weird thing in baseball and I guess in all sports where like they just happen and like they don't seem to have an explanation. So like after the fact, people will just like look at whatever change, you know, like this is how superstitions are. And it's I guess sort of explains why Jeter indulges the well, maybe I was stressed about A-Rod joining the team because it's like, yeah, why? who knows like why Why else would you slump for two months when you're like one of the best hitters in the world like there's no real explanation it's hard to come up with anything so like any plausible explanation like maybe I was wearing the wrong underwear like maybe I was you know maybe I needed this this heart-to-heart conversation um you know the players don't really know why they go into slumps if they did they'd never never go into them there is also a story in the captain where both Jeter and A-Rod remember like a conversation they had during a rain delay in Chicago where like you know, A-Rod approached Jeter and was like, hey man, are we good? And Jeter's like, kind of, and they just sort of had a little awkward talk about the fact that they were like, like Jeter was just a little puzzled about A-Rod coming to the Yankees. Like I wouldn't have, it's sort of an interesting thing to, you know, in the documentary, but I mean, it's clear that they were a little bit uneasy with each other. Like that was obvious, but it's the idea that that caused a two month slump. And, you know, Connor writing that it was the overriding factor is just like they just really desperately wanted these guys to hate each other so much. A bigger problem back in 2004, a real problem, was the Yankee pitching staff, which was not good. Mike Messina, the team's nominal ace. That's
2: the real curse with A-Rod. Everywhere he goes, the pitching just falls apart. It's
1: true. Yeah, like it <laughs> happened in Texas. It was a problem in Seattle. And here it happened in, the, in New York. Uh, Mike Messina, the team's nominal ace, was had been terrible that April. And he recovered a little bit on in May and June, but he was having the worst season of his career. And that was not great because he was one of the lone points of stability in the rotation. The Yankees had replaced Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, and David Wells that year with Kevin Brown, Javi Vasquez, and John Lieber. Who James will defend until his dying breath? Uh, Brown and Vasquez got off to good starts, also, but they got they basically fell apart in June. In the second half, Vasquez in particular had an ERA of six point nine two. That was for like half a season. His ERA was almost seven. Um, so Yankee John line-
2: Lieber, look at look at his August and September stats, man. He, <laughs> he he had like ten wins.
1: Yeah, he was their best pitcher or their best starter at least that year. But that's just not saying very much. <laughs> So even though the Yankee lineup, uh, led by A-Rod and the other new faces like Gary Sheffield, was good enough to keep the Yankees in first place, there were some concerns about the structural soundness of the roster. Uh, Joe Torre in the book he co-wrote with Tom Berducci, The Yankee Years, that we've referenced a few times already, he says that this was the first time he thought the Red Sox were better than the Yankees. And he's saying that after the fact, so obviously it's biased, but there's some truth to what he was saying, because Boston had added Curt Schilling that year, and he was putting together a great season. With him and Pedro Martinez, the Red Sox had a much scarier playoff rotation than the Yankees.
2: But this was still a Yankees versus the Red Sox, a matchup the Yankees had dominated for 86 years. And at the end of June, heading into a three-game series between the teams at Yankee Stadium, New York had a five-and-a-half game lead on Boston. The Yankees took the first two games of the series, setting up Game 3 on July 1st, 2004, which would turn out to be a classic extra inning entry in Yankee Red Sox lore. Some people call it like the best regular season game of all time. I think those people are like delusional Yankee fans, but it's It's a good game. Yeah, it gets thrown around. Um, Somewhat notably, Nomar garcia Parra would spend all 13 innings of this game on the bench. It was a weird year for Garcia Parra, the third leg of the shortstop tripod that Jeter, A-Rod, and Nomar made up in the 90s. Remember, the Red Sox had spent the offseason trying to replace him with Alex Rodriguez and or trying to dump his salary, and when that didn't work out, it was clear that Nomar was their second choice and kind of a reluctant one at that. Then, an ankle injury had kept Garcia Parra out the first two months of 2004, and when he was finally activated, His defense was diminished, and his hitting took a while to get going. Going into this series, his OPS was only 677, and before the game, he told Boston manager Terry Francona his ankle was sore and he needed a day off. So journeyman Pokey Reese got the start in his place and got a huge game-tying double in the 7th inning. Then the Yankees failed to capitalize on rallies in the bottom of the 7th, the ninth, and the 10th innings, sending the game tied 3-3 in the 11th. Then the Red Sox, who hadn't had a base runner since Reese's double in the seventh, loaded the bases with nobody out against Mariano Rivera. Then this happened. Rounded to third.
0: Nice play by a He comes home! They got him! And they might have a triple play! They get a triple play to get out of the jam! And now they're saying oh, that a yeah. did not step on third. Oh, he tagged so he third. Did. He did tag he third. He tagged third. Made Manny out on the force, and then the throw at home. So it's a double play. And he's yeah. Alex says, yes, you're right. Yeah. See, he, he touched the bag, so Manny's out. Then he threw and got the Now They went back. You can't get the same guy out twice unless they there change the you rules. <laughs> Some play by Alex, boy, and that was some play by Alex. I mean, that was not an easy hop. Get the the throw from the knee. Yeah, and how about the throw yeah. and not hit yeah, the runner, not hit the runner? Remarkable play.
2: To be clear, it was not a triple play.
1: It is a confusing play. It's not really clear what's going on to his, <laughs> in their defense. Plus, like they've been watching this game for like four hours. They were, <laughs> it's a long game. They're
2: confused. This is actually under the median runtime for a Yankees Red Sox game of the <laughs> But it was a spectacular game saving double play. Rivera retired the next batter to get out of the inning without a run scoring. This play is worth highlighting because some people have this idea that A Rod was always a terrible third baseman. That's not really true. According to Fangraphs, A Rod was worth 11.5 defensive runs above replacement in 2004. That's not as good as his best years at short, but it's pretty damn good for a first-year third baseman. His defense did fall off after the 2004 season, but other than one year we'll talk about later, he was not really the defensive liability that some people accuse him of being. It was just that he didn't really look natural at third the way he had at shortstop, except in brief flashes like this play
1: and that play probably would have made a more lasting impression if not for what Derek Jeter did the very next inning when the Red Sox put runners on second and third
0: one two he loops out the left field gonna be a tough play Jeter on the run makes the play flies into the stands oh what a play by Derek Jeter Cheetah really banged yeah, himself he, up. Wow. I think he caught the, you could see the redness in his face. He oh, caught yeah. the bar of that uh, box. What a play. Oh, my wow. goodness. He caught the, he had to know that was going to happen. I mean, it's just full tilt. There's no way you could stop. He had to hit one of the chairs. Yeah, on his it way had down. To one of the chairs, uh, handles or something like that. No way he could stop. It. Man. Wow. That's just all out. Pure hustle, pure guts. I gotta make the play. Nothing else matters.
1: It's probably the second most iconic play of Jeter's career after the flip, and it's the main thing everyone remembers about this game. In the replays, you can see A-Rod throwing his hands up in amazement as he watches Jeter lunge face-first into the stands to make a game-saving catch. And in so many ways, that's just like symbolic of their Yankee careers, with like Jeter doing something amazing and like getting all the attention, A-Rod just sort of in the background cheering him on. In the 13th inning, Manny put the Red Sox on top with a home run, but the Yankees rallied with two outs in the bottom of the inning to win the game on a walk-off single by, of all people, backup catcher John Flaherty. (laughs) The win completed a sweep of the Red Sox and put the Yankees eight and a half games ahead of of Boston in the AL East. But if it seemed like the division race was over, there was still so much more to this rivalry for that year. A few weeks later, on July 24th, the two teams would play another epic regular season game, and again, Alex was right in the middle of it. In the third inning, Bronson Arroyo, remember that name? It's going to come up again. He hit A-Rod with a pitch. There wasn't really any intent there. It was an off-speed pitch, and Arroyo was working inside. Was working Alex inside all the whole at-bat. But Alex really didn't like it, and he was jawing at the pitcher. Throw that shit over the fucking plate, he supposedly said a couple of times. At which point, the Red Sox catcher, Jason Varitek, slapped Alex in the face with his catcher's mitt, triggering a dugout-clearing brawl between the two teams.
0: Here we go. Veritek and A-Rod going at it. I think the second bad word that was said to Veritek, that's when we went gloved to the face. And I tried, if you look at the pictures, I tried to break it up with those two. Once, I couldn't do that. Once they went uh, to, to swing at each other, uh, it was off and we had, we had 50 players and coaches on the field. Schilling is right in the middle of it. Now another fight off to the side. Millar is in it. Nixon is in it.
1: When the dust settled, Arod and Varitek were thrown out of the game, but the image of Alex's face getting smothered by Varitek's glove would become iconic in Boston.
0: It's
2: weird that the guy wearing a helmet comes off as of like a... a the cooler tougher guy i know know. we're yankee fans we're biased on this i
1: truly do not understand why this is supposed to make a rod look like like you know a weak you know like the the thing that everyone says about a rod is like a rod is a bitch right that this is that he comes off like a like lame in this fight but like jason Veritek is wearing a face mask and all this catcher's gear and he sucker punches a rod with his gloved hand like he doesn't even throw a punch he like hits him with his gloved fist like in the head like but people act like this is like A-Rod getting beaten up. And it's like, no, like, yeah, Veritex started a fight and the dugouts cleared and it got brought up. I don't really see this as like this the indictment. But like Red Sox fans like will still make this their like avatars on Twitter to, to this day, like two decades later. So like, I don't really get why this is this big deal, but obviously I'm not a Red Sox fan. So why would I? <laughs>
2: Uh, I also, I feel like there's a little bit of like Rorschach's brawl with this, where like both Yankees (laughs) and Red Sox fans kind of claim it as a victory.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's true of almost any sports brawl, right? Because like, it's never like one of the players dies. So it's like, it's (laughs) always like it gets broken up before anything is really resolved. And so you're like, my guys won. (laughs) Uh, and the reason the Red Sox really claim this is that they pulled off an epic comeback in the game, later in the game. They were down 9-4. to They won the game 11-10, inclu- which included a walk-off home run against Mariano Rivera. In 2004 Red Sox lore, this is the game that turned their season around. But if you look at the calendar, that's not really true. The Yankees' division lead actually grew to 10.5 games in the following weeks. But this series was really the last hurrah for, hurrah for Nomar. He was gone from the Yankee-Red Sox rivalry a couple of days later. The day after he'd stayed on the bench for the 13-inning thriller in New York, Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe wrote a trade Nomar column. And that's exactly what they did at the deadline, trading Garcia Parr to the Cubs in a four-team deal. To replace him, the Red Sox got Orlando Cabrera to play shortstop. Cabrera was not a phenom. If anything, he was a throwback to the shortstops of years past. He was the kind of guy that James and I discussed in our you know, had predated the shortstop renaissance. A slick fielding, light hitter, light hitter. He could steal a few bases and he was a reliable singles hitter, but he was, you got him for defense and when he was healthy. And, and that's what Boston wanted.
2: Going back to the brawl game, though, uh, it may not have been a turning point in the season, but it did expose the Yankees' Achilles heel, the aforementioned bad pitching. I should have looked this up, but I didn't. I'm pretty sure Tanyan Sturts started that game.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, in fact, Tanyan
2: Sturts. Um, In mid-August, the pitching staff had been held together with Mariano Rivera, Tom Gordon, and Scotch Tate, and uh, it was starting to fall apart. For a three-week stretch from August 15th to September 4th, the Yankees gave up more than six and a half runs per game and watched their ten and a half game division lead fall to two and a half games. It never got closer than that, and the Yankees won the AL East and went into the playoffs with the best record in the American League. But it was clear that there were cracks in the armor. They had overperformed their expected win-loss record by 12 games. And if the Yankees were going to advance in the postseason, they would need their lineup to carry them. And that meant relying on Alex Rodriguez, much the same way his Seattle teams had relied on him in the late 90s and 2000. As we talked about in a prior episode, that 2000 ALCS, A-Rod was like the Mariners' whole offense. And now in the division series, the Yankees were matched up against the Minnesota Twins, who'd won the AL Central. And if you've followed baseball in the last two decades, you probably know that the Yankees generally do well against the Minnesota Twins. Like, suspiciously well. Since yeah, 2002...
1: Eerily game, well. Like, it's, it's very weird. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the, since 2002, the Yankees have won more than 70% of their games against Minnesota, even though the Twins have generally been good in those years. In the playoffs, it's even worse. The Yankees are 16-2 against Minnesota since 0-2, having knocked them out all six times they faced each other. So in retrospect, it feels obvious that the Yankees would win this series, like it's a mere formality on the way to the ALCS or the World Series. But we're going to ask you to cleanse your mind of what you know has happened in the intervening time, because in 2004, the Yankees' dominance of the Twins wasn't such an established fact. The 2004 Twins were a dangerous team, and they had a secret weapon named Johan Santana. 04 was Santana's first full year as a starting pitcher, and he had immediately become the best pitcher in baseball. He led the AL in strikeouts, ERA, and WHIP that year. He'd won 20 games and was unanimously voted the Cy Young winner. Meanwhile, the Yankees had virtually no one who could stand up to him on on their pitching rotation.
1: Don't forget John Lieber. <laughs>
2: Well, uh, you know, it would have been like unseemly with the, like the, <laughs> the high salary guys, like Musima, yeah. Like, but then in Game One, Santana shut down the Yankees for seven innings. It was actually a weird game. Santana gave up nine hits, and the Yankees had runners on in every inning until the ninth. But they hit into five double plays and couldn't score. So the Twins went up one game to none in the series. Game two was back and forth. The Twins were up one nothing then 3-1, but the Yankees came back, and A-Rod put them ahead for the first time in the series with a home run in the fifth (laughs) inning.
0: That ball is hit by Alex Rodriguez out of the Death Valley. Way, way back there, and that ball is gone! A home run! And the Yankees have gone ahead! The third home run of the night for the Yankees, and Alex Rodriguez has his first Yankees postseason home run. And John, this is the Yankee team that I thought might show up today. This is a home run hitting machine. Watch his momentum. He doesn't pull away. He's going back through the middle and left right center, as he told me before the game, but he's reacting to the ball inside. That pitch was inside. He reacted to it and hit it out of the ballpark.
2: He added an RBI single in the 7th, and it was 5-3 Yankees going into the 8th. But then that damned Achilles heel showed itself.
1: The Yankee bullpen had been crucial all season, but by the playoffs, Joe Torre really relied on only two guys out there, Tom Gordon and Mariano Rivera. His inability to trust anyone else, combined with the heavy workloads for both of them, would bedevil the Yankees all postseason, and that started here. Gordon, who had already pitched more innings than he ever had since becoming a relief pitcher in 1997, came into the game to get out of a jam in the seventh, but put two runners on with one out in the eighth. So Torrey put Rivera in the game. Mariano had saved 53 games that season, the most he'd ever had. But this game, he wasn't sharp. He gave up a single to Justin Morneau and then a double to Corey Koski, and suddenly the game was tied. Since the Yankees eventually won this game, spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, It's usually not listed when people bring up Mariano Rivera's postseason blown saves. Rivera has five career postseason blown saves and three are from this 2004 postseason. The other two are pretty famous. We're not going to go into them, but he actually blew this one too. And it could have been worse. Koski's double bounced into the stands, keeping the runners at second and third. And then Rivera got out of the jam with a strikeout and a ground ball. But this was a sign of a chink in the Yankees bullpen armor. The game stayed tied until the 12th when Torrey Hunter, Homer, to give the Twins a 6-5 lead. But Joe Nathan, the Twins' closer, who was pitching his third inning in relief, walked two batters in the bottom of the inning, bringing our guy A-Rod to the plate with a chance to win the game. And you're not going to
0: believe what happened. Under pressure. (laughs) Left center. Hit well. Way back there. This ball is... And that saves the Twins! Yeah. Instead of the winning run scoring, Jeter will have to go back to third. When it bounced over, it cost the Yankees, just as it cost the Twins, when Koski's ball bounced over in the eighth inning, on which a run would have scored. And a great job there by Alex Rodriguez. That was team baseball. He did not swing at the first strike he saw after the guy had thrown nine straight pitch balls. He waits, he gets a hanging slider, and he rips it up the gap, and you're right, the Yankees are robbed of the game-winning double there by Alex Rodriguez because the ball bounces over the wall. It's a slider down, and he goes out and gets it. I mean, that I thought it was a hanging slider. It really wasn't. But look at the swing by Alex. He knows, he thinks the game is
1: over. The game should have been over. It was a double deep into the gap that clearly would have scored Derek Jeter the winning run from first if it had not bounced over the wall. Rodriguez should have been the hero. You can even hear Joe Morgan credit him for playing, quote, team baseball. Fucking Joe Morgan. I know. I don't even understand what he means, really. Uh, (laughs) But there was a little bit of karmic revenge for this ground rule double. As Miller says in that clip, the Twins had been screwed by a ground rule double earlier in the game, in that eighth inning when they tied the game off Rivera. But this was not as impactful as that because the game only lasted two more hitters. Hideki Matsui hit a sacrifice fly that ended ended the game a couple batters later. A-Rod's heroics were the key, though, even if they were completely forgotten. I bet if you asked a thousand Yankee fans about this series, you'd get maybe two or three who remembered Arod's hit, not to mention his go-ahead home run in the fifth. Whether it was because it was against the Twins or because it was Matsui's fly ball that technically ended the game or just because it was A-Rod, these postseason heroics would not count in his favor.
2: Rodriguez went 0-5 for 5 in Game 3, but the Yankees still scored eight runs and won the game. But there was more trouble. Waiting 8-1 in the ninth, neither Felix Heredia nor Tanyan Sturz could get anyone on the Twins out. And so Joe Torre was forced to use Rivera again in a game that should have been an easy blowout. In Game 4, Johan Santana returned to the mound for the Twins. He wasn't as dominant as he had been in Game 1, but Minnesota still led 5-1 going into the 8th when the Yankees rallied to tie the game. The Yankees sent 8 batters to the plate in the 8th inning, everyone 1 but A-Rod. And the big hit was a three-run homer by Ruben Sierra off Juan Rincon, which tied the score at 5 Arod led off the ninth with a double, but was stranded on third. So the next time he came up in the 11th, he decided to just win the game himself.
0: The lack of the big hit late. There is a big hit late. It goes to the left field corner, and Alex Rodriguez has doubled twice in the last three innings. I'm pop, pop. Runner going. And boulders no throw. Alex Rodriguez, with Loesch paying him no attention, just sprinted to third base. And now the go ahead run in third with only one out. Sheffield at the plate. Just heads up, complete baseball. He one looked him. Alex could still run. And he just took advantage of the situation. It gets away. And here comes
2: Alex To review, he doubled with one out, then stole third, then scored on a wild pitch, basically creating the winning run himself out of nothing. Rivera closed out the game in the bottom of the 11th. He and Tom Gordon combined to pitch four scoreless innings in Game 4, and the Yankees finished off the Twins uh, in what had been a pretty close series. And Alex Rodriguez had been the difference. He led the team in hits, batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, and stolen bases. But more than that statistical dominance, he had been clutch, coming up huge in both extra-inning wins. Again, we cannot stress enough how much nobody remembers this series. Rivera's blown save, A-Rod's huge performance, it all just got forgotten it would become an accepted fact that Alex Rodriguez had never had a good postseason series, despite the fact that this was his first postseason series after the 2000 ALCS, where he dominated. Or if some people remembered his performance in Seattle, they would say that he had never done it with the Yankees. He couldn't handle the pressure in New York. He folded when the lights were brightest. He wasn't a true Yankee. The fact that in his very first playoff series as a Yankee, he'd been the team's best player and basically won them the series... It wasn't so much dismissed as completely ignored. This never happened.
0: It will shock you how much it never happened.
2: This is why discussions of clutchness and postseason heroics are so flawed. They are so subject to all the flaws of human memory and the biases people have. When you like someone, you remember the good things they do. When you don't like someone, you forget them. It's really as simple as that.
1: And look, we'd be lying if we said that what came next didn't understandably overshadow this division series against the Twins. We're going to get to that. And we're not trying to make too big a deal out of a four-game series against Minnesota. But if Alex Rodriguez hadn't played well in this series, don't you think people would remember that? James, I'm curious. Do you remember this series?
2: I no (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: that's what I'm saying like we love A-Rod we are doing a whole podcast series defending him and even both of us had to look up this series to remember how well A-Rod played we'd also forgotten this because it just you don't remember things like the things especially in series when you lose these this just happens like it's just you can't rely on things like memory to determine if a player is clutch or you know candles pressure or whatever that stuff is just so biased
2: I remember more regular season series <laughs> from the 2004 season than I do this one.
1: Yeah, no, um, it's it's just very forgettable. Maybe I think, it's, <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's the twins. Who knows? Yeah,
2: but it, it they were these were exciting games. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, the, when you said Corey new <laughs> <but laughs> part of my brain was accessed.
1: Yeah, he's he's like the. Platonic ideal of a forgettable twins player from the 90s and odds is Corey Koski. Yeah.
2: <sighs> We've been putting it off, but should we talk about the 2004 ALCS?
1: I guess we have to. Before we get to the actual games, I think we need to bring up Kurt Schilling. We mentioned him earlier, the fact that the Red Sox had traded for him that offseason. It was a real coup. It was the Yankees who expressed interest in Schilling first. And before the A-Rod trade, the fact that the Red Sox got Schilling instead of the Yankees was the biggest move of that offseason. Schilling had been great for Boston. He went 21-6 that season, finishing second in the Cy Young race to Santana. And he gave the Red Sox a formidable top of the rotation. Schilling and Pedro were clearly better than anyone on New York staff. But Curt Schilling hurt his right ankle in the division series against the Angels, rupturing the membrane of a tendon. He still started game one against the Yankees. The team put his ankle in a brace and they gave him an anesthetic, but the tendon quickly, quote, snapped out of position. I don't really know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Uh, he couldn't really plant his back foot and he couldn't really get any weight behind it. So his v- velocity was way down. He couldn't control his breaking ball and he gave up six runs in three innings.
2: Oh, just a little boo-boo. <laughs> yeah,
1: look, fuck chilling. I mean, honestly. Uh <laughs> And I remember how how confident I was after this game. I was like Schilling is done. The Yankees are going to win this series so easily. I mean we got, but and they did win that game 10-7, uh but the big question would after the game was whether Schilling would be able to pitch again in the series. Some people thought he was gone done, some people thought he could be repaired, but it looked like even if he could come back there would be nothing, you know, he couldn't bring anything on his pitches and he wouldn't be a reliable starter for the Red Sox. But there was another side to this game. The Yankees had been up 8-0 after to six innings, only to watch Boston score seven unanswered runs to make it a close game. It was another game that should have been a blowout, but they had to bring in Rivera to actually get four outs. All because, again, the Yankees just didn't have any other relief pitchers they could trust. Even Gordon at this point was showing signs of breaking down. He gave up a two-run triple to David Ortiz. How many fucking triples has David Ortiz ever hit in his life? <laughs> the next day, the Yankees got a great starting performance from James... John Lieber, baby. (laughs) Yep. The only good starting performance they would really get in that series. Uh, And they won the game three to one. Again, though, they needed to use Mariano Rivera for more than one inning. Over the first six games of the postseason, Rivera had pitched eight and a third innings. He had yet to be charged with a run, even though he'd blown a save by giving up an inherited runner. And the Yankees were wearing him pretty thin. Game three was a wild one. Neither team starter got out of the third inning and the Yankees eventually put up 19 runs, winning 19 to eight. For the first time all postseason, they did not have to use Rivera. We haven't mentioned Arod's performance in the series yet because his performance was pretty unremarkable. Through the first three games, he went 6-for-14 with two doubles, which sounds really good, but the truth is the whole lineup had been killing it in those games. They scored 32 runs over three games. Uh, Hideki Matsui and Gary Sheffield were even better than Arod. I mean, John Ulruh was getting big hits for Christ's sake. <sighs> but then came game four. Yankees got off to a good start in game four. It was actually Alex Rodriguez who put them on top with a two-run home run in the third inning, setting them up for the series sweep. Boston scored three runs in the fifth, but the Yankees took back the lead in the sixth, going up 4-3. to three. Unfortunately, after going up by one run, the Yankees left the bases loaded, squandering a chance to get some much needed insurance run. And by the way, the guy who grounded out to lead the bases loaded was Derek Jeter, not A-Rod, in case you were thinking that. The Yankees also left runners on in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, failing to add to their lead. And that would uh, come back to haunt them. Because look, we're not going to rehash too much what came next. You know what came next. There have been documentaries and highlight reels and a million flashbacks to this. Mariano Rivera in his 10th inning of work that postseason blew a save because of some rinky dink roller up the middle after a stupid stolen base by a part-time player who was turned into some shitty ass manager. And then David (laughs) Ortiz walked the game off in the bottom of the 12th. You know of this. I don't need to rehash this. Okay. Right. 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 And also another thing nobody remembers about this game is Ortiz came up with the bases loaded in the ninth inning and stupid Mr. McClutchy McClutch, he popped out to end the rally. So you forgot that just like we forgot the twin series. This is all, you know, not worth discussing.
2: Uh, That's Hall of Famer David Ortiz to you, John. Oh, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Red Sox came back again the next night winning 5-4 four in 14 innings, sending the series back to New York, and now they handed the ball back to Kurt Schilling. After Schilling's disastrous performance in Game 1, the Red Sox team doctor, Bill Morgan, had devised a revolutionary new surgical procedure to, as the New York Times put it, suture the skin around the dislocated tendon in Schilling's right ankle down to the deep tissue to form an artificial sheath to prevent the tendon from snapping against the bone. The great. surgery was so radical that Morgan had to practice on a cadaver before trying it on Schilling. Is that just like uh, a normal practice? I, mean, I,
1: I think surgeons do practice on cadavers, like on dead bodies. I think it's like, you know, a baseball player taking some cuts in the batting cages or on the on-deck circle. You got to get loose, you know? But yeah, it, it, I think it's unusual to just sort of like the day before the first time you're ever doing it. Be like, let me just let me just go, go go downstairs real quick and practice on a dead body.
2: I got to say that the A-Rod Chronicles are a little... Involving a lot of medical discussion that I wasn't really (laughs) prepared for. In any case, we were left with the famous bloody sock game. The incision on Schilling's ankle bled through his sock, creating the iconic image, but his foot remained stable enough for him to pitch seven innings and give up only one run. The closest thing the Yankees had to a rally off Schilling came in the fourth inning, when A-Rod and Sheffield both singled. Then... Hideki Matsui popped out, and Bernie Williams and Jorge Posada grounded out, straining them on second and third. The only runoff off Shilling came when Bernie homered in the seventh, and Boston led four to one going into the eighth. When Red Sox manager Terry Francona brought in Bronson Arroyo to replace Schilling. which, by the way, weird move in retrospect. It does.
1: It does remind you that like the bringing in starters to pitch in relief as like a weird. Over managing thing—that's not like a new thing. Like managers really have always done that, you know. Like, uh, uh, I—it's like I complain about it constantly. Every October is like, just let your relief pitchers pitch in relief. But uh, I guess Frank was doing that even in two thousand and four. So, yeah.
2: Well, we told you to remember this guy's name, Bronson Arroyo. He is the dreadlocked man who hit Rodriguez with a pitch back in July. Sparking the benches, clearing Brawl, and bringing him in, finally woke up the Yankee bats. Miguel Cairo doubled, then Jeter singled, making it 4-2, and bringing A-Rod to the plate as the tying run. Instead of a big hit, though, Alex hit a little dribbler down the first baseline. It looked like an easy play for Arroyo coming off the mound, but then the ball popped out of his glove and rolled all the way down the right field line. Jeter came all the way around to score, and A-Rod went to second, and for a moment, it looked like the Yankees were rallying. For
0: a moment. Off the end of the bat. Arroyo. The ball gets loose. It's down the right field line. Jeter coming all the way around. It's a one-run game. And now we're going to have an argument as Francona comes out of the dugout. He swatted the ball out of a Royals head. If it's in the process of running to first base, that's one thing. If he intentionally swatted it with one hand or one arm or the other, saw Arod swipe it. Out of the glove Uh, of Arroyo. That I think he's out. He should be out. Yeah, because that is clearly, as Arroyo puts the ball in the glove, the left arm came down. No. And they're going to call him out. He's out. They got the call right again, and they're going to bring Jeter all the way back to first base. Alex Rodriguez is trying to plead his case. But he clearly knocked the ball out of the glove of Arroyo. Take a run off the board, put Jeter back at first. Two out in the inning with Sheffield coming up.
2: What happened was Rodriguez had clearly slapped Arroyo's glove as Arroyo was going to tag him out. That's why the ball rolled away and why Jeter had been able to score. There was some precedent for a play like this. When the Yankees and Red Sox played in the 1999 ALCS, there was a suspicious double play called against Boston after a phantom tag from Yankees second baseman Chuck Knobloch. Even though Knobloch missed Jose Offerman by like a foot, the um umpire had called Offerman out, ending the inning. That just seemed like part of the rivalry, part of the curse, that the umps would miss big calls in favor of the Yankees at crucial moments. But this time, the umpires quickly gathered together to correct the call. Ruling Alex Rodriguez out and sending Derek Jeter back to first base. Next, Gary Sheffield popped out to end the inning, and what seemed like it might have been a game tying rally fizzled out after only one run.
1: Yeah, and Alex would never really live this moment down. This, like, kind of ineffectual effete slap of Arroyo in a, in a crucial moment seemed to sort of define a rod people act like this was some horrible thing he did it was an act of desperation they the the you know his he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna reach for space safely either way
2: and just like the i i've also seen a lot of twitter avatars with this play as their image you know as their like profile picture and um like this is one of those moments that has really like caught itself in the collective memory and um was one of the lasting images of the series. The the image of A-Rod, the, the superstar, just trying to like slap the ball away really did make him seem like a conniving little cheater or something. Yeah, I um, want to
1: read two quotes, both of which I think are demonstrate something that is like really two different ways this play was perceived. And I think which are both really exaggerations. Versus from Arroyo himself. Uh, Arroyo said, if Alex doesn't do that, then Derek's standing on second base and it's a different mindset for me with Sheffield up and a runner in scoring position. The idea here being that like, A-Rod, by like, committing interference, screwed the Yankees over because Jeter would have been at second if he had just sort of accepted the tag rather than first. That seems like total bullshit to me. Like the idea, like what I'm what I'm saying is like, again, yeah, like he had already grounded out. Like the mistake that A-Rod made on this play was not hitting a home run. Like, the, you know, he had already hit the ball, like this little dribbler back to first base. So if he had just like the difference of Jeter being on first or second, Sheffield popped up to end the inning anyway. Like, I don't think that's really this huge deal.
2: I love the idea of Bronson Arroyo being like,
1: yeah, man, there was no way I was going to get said, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What is Arroyo saying? He's like, I would have been so stressed about it. I would have like definitely that Sheffield did a home run. Like I, they just said this shit to like to basically toy with A-Rod, make him seem worse. And then the next quote is from Schilling, who really laid into to, to A-Rod. This was, on, I think, on Dan Patrick's radio show The Next Morning, which is really weird because he pitches like great game and just like goes on the radio the next morning. Like, come on, man, sleep in. Um, he He goes uh that was freaking junior high baseball at its best first of all bronson wasn't in the baseline to begin with he could have easily broken his arm (laughs) it's hard to read that with a straight (laughs) face come on that was tired let me ask you something does Derek jeter do that you know for a fact he doesn't because Derek jeter is a class act and a professional that's why aaron is a hall of fame player he could be the greatest player that ever played but i don't associate class with him not at all like first of all like what what You know, like first the idea that like A-Rod could have hurt Arroyo is so funny because like the whole thing that people criticize A-Rod for is that it was like this little girly slap. The idea that like Arroyo's arm would have been fractured by this slap is just hilarious. Um, You know, this idea that it was a low class, disgusting play. It was a little bit desperate. It was a little bit bush league. But when you're losing, when you feel the series that you were up 3-0 slipping away. You do desperate things. And I think that uh, this this idea that A-Rod had crossed some imaginary line, that he'd broken some unwritten rule, would would become a big part
2: of the narrative about Alex. Again, I'll quote the captain in that A-Rod said something like, I guess I should have let him tag me like a good little boy. I thought that was a good line. And there's there's another quote from A-Rod separately where he says, uh, looking back, maybe I should have run him over. It is one of those weird things, but it was like just such a turning point because when A-Rod's standing on second base as a tying run, it feels like one of those inevitable moments like the Aaron Boone home run or right. something like that. And then it just goes to shit immediately. Yeah, it
1: seemed like this was it. This was the turning point. This was like, you know, Jeter always talks about the ghosts coming out at Yankee Stadium and like, you know, screwing over the Red Sox and helping the Yankees. And it seemed like the ghosts were coming out because they got this lucky break where the umpires at first missed the slap, but then they catch it, they call it right out, they send Jeter back to first base, and it was just an example of like the luck may have run out. Like they this is this might be it for the Yankees. But I think the like
2: they'll only help you if you play shortstop.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think the You know, look, the turning point had already happened. You know, they were already, you know, they'd already blown two chances to win the series. They'd already come up empty against Schilling. And now the series was tied. Uh, No baseball team had ever forced a game seven after losing the first three games. So the Red Sox seemed to have all the momentum. And the next night, it was just pretty anticlimactic. The Yankees are basically out of pitchers. In his book, Joe Torrey talks about having to decide between Vasquez, who, quote, wasn't an option to inspire any confidence, and, and Kevin Brown, who, quote, was a guy with a bad back, a guy his teammates did not particularly trust, understand, or like. So those were, those were Tory's options.
2: Kevin Brown missed most of September that year because he punched a wall and broke his own hand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. In the uh, end. Honestly, I mean, I'm surprised Tanya and Sturz didn't get a longer look. That's, that's what we're dealing with at this point.
1: I mean, in retrospect, he really should have. Or they should have used John Lieber on Zero Days Rest. Um, <laughs> in the end, Torrey sort of split the difference. He started Kevin Brown, but pulled him in the second inning. By that point, the Red Sox already scored two runs and then loaded the bases. So Torrey brought in Vasquez, who on the very first pitch surrendered a grand slam to Johnny Damon. Yankees had only come up to the bat one time and they were already down 6-0. Vasquez gave up another home run to Damon a couple innings later, and Boston won 10-3. A week later, they won their first World Series since 1918, officially breaking the curse of the Bambino. Tori Ugh. Yeah, I mean, God. we spent way too much time talking about what was in really like the worst week of my life as a sports fan. <laughs> Tory's inability to find a competent Game 7 starter, that was really like symbolic of this new Yankee team. A team that was built by the dreaded free agency, made up of hired guns who couldn't really be counted on. Where had all those big money acquisitions been when the Yankees really needed them? Kevin Brown couldn't get out of the second inning. Vasquez was totally unreliable. Jason Giambi hadn't even been on the postseason roster. They made up some phony injury with him because he wasn't hitting that season. And then there was A-Rod the biggest of all the big money acquisitions. After the go-ahead home run he hit in Game 4, he'd gone 1-for-16 the rest of that series, this after going 7-for-15 before that. Those 3.5 bad games would overshadow the first 3.5 and the four games against the Twins, beginning the narrative that Alex Rodriguez could not perform in the clutch, that he couldn't get the big hit, that when you needed him the most, the best he could do was slap the ball out of the guy's glove and hope the umpires would miss it. Talking to reporters after the ALCS, Derek Jeter first called the loss shocking. And when asked why that magic had never come out, why that, those ghosts that they always seemed to come up against Boston never appeared, he said, it's not the same team. I've said it time after time. It's not the same team. Well, what was different? It wasn't just A-Rod, but what A-Rod seemed to represent. All that money. The Red Sox were a team of cast-offs, the idiots they called themselves, guys that were underappreciated and undervalued, like Bill Miller, Kevin Millar, and of course, David Ortiz. That was how you were supposed to build a team now, not through money, not through well-paid free agents. Remember, the initial concern around the league when Alex Rodriguez signed his big contract was that you wouldn't be able to win without spending money. But now the message was that you can't win if you spend money. It had been true in Texas, and now it followed him to New York like a curse. Arod, he may be talented, but you can't win with him.
2: Chapter 4 brings us to the end of the 2004 season, by which point Arod's career home run count had risen up to 381, and his career war was all the way up to 71.2. 2004 is probably most notable as the year where A-Rod's reputation as a playoff choker really solidified. So with that in mind, I want to read A-Rod's career playoff stats through 2004 ALCS. Good idea. (laughs) Over 26 games and 103 at-bats, A-Rod got 34 hits with 6 home runs and 60 total bases. His on-base percentage was 388. He had slugged five eighty three for a career postseason OPS
1: of nine seventy one. The AROD Chronicles is an undrafted production brought to you by us, the Lefty Specialists, written, edited, and produced by the Lefty Specialists, music composed by Lonnie Ginsberg.
2: Until next week.